welcome to the Nature Storyteller Podcast. Thank you for joining us today. We hope you will immerse yourself in an enchanting realm of storytelling and let me take you on an extraordinary adventure in nature. In each episode of the Nature Storyteller, we will bring you a delightful blend of our own take on the traditional folk tales and our own original stories, all inspired by experiences of the wonders of the natural world. Together, we will uncover the secrets of the mystical trees, the power of plants, the majestic wild animals we share our world with, and the ancient celebrations, the dance of the weather, to the shifting of the seasons as we evolve throughout the year. Join us then for this enchanting podcast that will take you to a place deep within your own imagination where nature comes alive through the magic of storytelling. Long ago, the wet and boggy marshlands of the Fens in England were home to a terrifying array of ghosts, spirits and strange creatures. The Fens were haunted by boggarts, will-o'-the-wisps, disembodied voices, armless hands and witches, who emerged at night and frightened the local people. The frightened folks would return to their homes, lock their doors and draw all their curtains. However, there was one spirit of the wetlands that the locals could trust, the Tiddyman. He lived in the dark green waters and came out only at night when the mists were swirling over the fens. Some said he was a small man, no larger than a three-year-old child. He was just like the mist. His hair and beard were long and flowing and silver white. His grey cloak swirled and floated like the mists themselves as he limped along the pathways to wherever he was heading. It was said that the Tiddyman could only be identified by his whistling and lapwing-like laughter. Unlike other frightening creatures in the fens, the Tiddyman was not malevolent. Instead, he aided the locals, and they held him in high regard. During times of heavy rain and flooding, when the marshes overflowed onto the doorsteps and pathways, the families would venture out into the dark night and call out. Tiddyman, without a name, the waters soaked the earth once again. Then they would wait anxiously, huddled together, until they heard the lapwing's call. Back then, people believed this was a sign that the Tiddyman had heard them and that they were safe from the rising waters. The next morning, the waters would be down and the fields dry, thanks to the Tiddyman. However, this was all about to change. You see, the king wanted the fens drained so farmers could grow crops to feed their animals. He called in the best land drainage experts he knew, the Dutchman. 
to drain the bogs using long, straight ditches and tall earth barriers to keep the waters out. The people of the Fens did not like this idea. They were fiercely protective of their homeland and they did not want it drained. They refused to help the drainage men by offering them food and shelter even when some of the workers disappeared from their makeshift camps without a trace, lost to the dark fen nights. The locals said the bog spirits were taking the drainage workers, and they asked the king to stop draining the waters of the fens, but the king did not listen. For every man who disappeared, he sent three more to replace them. As the fens grew drier from the water, flowing away along the ditches and blocked by the drains, the cattle in the fields became sick and some died. Those that remained stopped producing milk and as time passed, the crops in the fields failed and the people grew ever more hungry. Those who did not starve were consumed with a fever that raged like a fire inside them before taking them from this life to the next. The local people were frightened and didn't know what to do. In a panic, they blamed the witches and the Todd Lowrys. Some threw stones at the wall-eyed witch from Gorby, and others duck Sally of Wadham in a pond until she nearly died. A few set our father backwards and spat to the east to keep the Todd Lowrys away, but nothing worked. As the new moon approached, the people remembered the Tiddyman and gathered with water jugs to make their way to a familiar place on the fen. This was a spot that their ancestors had said was a meeting place between their world and the other realm. During Samhain, it is believed that the veil between the mortal world and the afterlife was quite thin, allowing for easy passage between the two. However, it was also warned that one should never let the fairies catch you peeking into their realm. The group gathered in silence at the enchanted location on the fen and began to chant. Tiddyman, nameless one, here's some water for your fen. Now block the ditches and burst the dams and bring our wet and boggy lands back again. They fell silent, straining their ears for a response from the Tiddyman. But nothing came. They repeated their chant, this time louder. Tiddyman, nameless one. Here's some water for your fen. Now block the ditches and burst the dams and bring our wet and boggy lands back again. They waited a long, long time, but still the night remained silent. For a third time, they raised their voices as one. Tiddyman, nameless one, Here's some water for your fen. Now block the ditches and burst the dams and bring our wet and boggy lands back again. Suddenly, 
The silence was broken by an awful sound of wailing and whimpering, a sound that no one would ever want to hear again. They were surrounded by the spirits of those they had lost during the harsh famine and from the fever. And the spirits were crying, sobbing and wailing, enough to break the hardest of hearts. Then there was stillness again. The night was so dark they couldn't see anything, but they could feel the water lapping around their feet. Just then, they heard the lapwings call from across the river, far, far away, and they knew the Tidinum had heard. And since that day, nature has thrived in the fens. Every new moon, the locals still visit the nearest water's edge with a water jug and as they empty the water into the fen streams and rivers, they say, Tiddyman, without a name, here is some water for your fen. Protect us from drought and disease and keep the water fen flowing with ease. And then they wait. They wait in silence until the lapwing's call comes back soft and tender, for they know the Tiddyman has heard them, and all is well in the past. I hope you have enjoyed the story of the Tiddyman as the start of our celebration of All Hallows' Eve. Our modern Halloween celebrations are steeped in the traditions of the past as a brief look into the origins reveals. The festival of Samhain originates from Celtic paganism and takes place from the 31st of October to the 1st of November. It is a celebration of the harvest and the onset of the dark half of the year, when the boundaries between our physical world and the spirit world are believed to be more permeable, enabling more interaction between the two worlds. For the ancient Celts, Samhain was the most significant of the four quarterly fire festivals. It occurs halfway between the autumn equinox and the winter solstice when families would let their half fires burn out whilst they gathered in their harvests. Later, people would join Druid priests in lighting a community fire using a wheel that caused friction to spark the flames. The wheel represented the sun and was used in conjunction with prayers. Participants would take a flame from the communal bonfire back to their homes to rekindle their hearts. During Samhain, the Celts believed that their ancestors could cross over and so they would dress as animals and monsters to avoid being kidnapped by fairies. The Pukar was a specific monster in the mythology surrounding Samhain, a shape-shifting creature that received harvest offerings straight from the fields. Lady Gwyn was a headless woman dressed in white who chased night wanderers and a was accompanied by a black pig. The Dullahan was sometimes an impish creature, other times a headless man on a horse who carried his own head under his arm. 
riding flame-eyed horses, their appearance was considered a death omen to anyone who encountered them. To ward off evil spirits, carved turnips known as jack-o'-lanterns were hung from strings or attached to sticks and embedded with coal. Later, the Irish tradition switched to using pumpkins. Trick-or-treating is derived from ancient Irish and Scottish practices in the nights leading up to Samhain. In Ireland, mumming was the tradition of dressing up, going out door to door and singing songs to the dead, with cake given as a payment. In Scotland, trick-or-treating is known as guising, where children dress as monsters so they blend in with the spirits walking the streets at night and they are given gifts to ward away evil spirits. As Christianity spread, church leaders attempted to reframe Samhain as a Christian celebration and shifted the holiday from its pagan roots. October the 31st became known as All Hallows' Eve or Halloween. And many of the traditional pagan practices were incorporated into it and adopted in the 19th century America by Irish immigrants bringing their traditions across the ocean. Halloween pranks have a tradition in Samhain, although in the ancient celebrations, tricks were typically blamed on the fairies. In the 1980s, a revival of Samhain in its traditional pagan form began with the increasing popularity of Wicca. Wiccans celebrate Samhain with traditional fire ceremonies and celebrations that incorporate many aspects of modern Halloween. They view Samhain as the end of one year and the beginning of another. In the Druid tradition, Samhain commemorates the dead with a festival on the 31st of October each year, which usually features a bonfire and a communion with the dead. So now, step out with me into the chilly, dark evening to celebrate All Hallows' Eve with a classic tale from Welsh folklore. This is the story of Caradhrin's Cauldron. upon a time there was a woman named Keradwin, who was a powerful lady of magic and also known as a moon goddess. She used to reside near the Bala Lake. Keradwin had two children, a girl named Cora, meaning dear one, as she was as beautiful as the moon over water. Her son, Avagdu, meaning black wings, was named because his dark hair, which covered all of his body, reminded Keradwin of the magnificent blue-black feathers of the raven. Although Keradwin thought that her son was the most wonderful boy in the world, as Avagdu grew, it became clear to her that it was only she who saw her son this way. His appearance, lack of interest and rudeness made people dislike him. However, Geridwin loved her son and wanted to help him find happiness. She decided to create a recipe 
by using her knowledge of plants, trees, roots and herbs which she would brew in her cauldron of wisdom and inspiration. She gave Avagdu three drops of that brew with his bedtime drink and waited patiently for the change to come. Unfortunately, nothing happened. In fact, things just got worse. People started laughing at him and adults whispered that he was just too lazy to learn at school. Keratwin was determined to help her son and decided to create a powerful elixir that would ensure that her son would be well-liked and respected for being wise beyond his years. She knew that she would need to create a powerful potion and read books of the old Druish alchemists known as the Feridit. She had vast knowledge of herb lore and traveled far and wide to gather the plants, herbs, roots and flowers that she would collect at just the right time of the year and within the correct phase of the moon, just as the master alchemists had taught her. Keridwin knew that she would have to brew them in her cauldron for a whole year and a day Knowing that she couldn't watch her cauldron for a whole year and a day alone, she decided to hire a young lad named Guion, who was her neighbor's son. For the entire year, Guion kept the fire under the cauldron well stocked, gathering wood when Keridrin was watching her cauldron and stirring the elixir with a long-handled spoon made from walnut. This is how young Guion spent every day for a whole year. As the days passed, the elixir started to bubble more and more in the cauldron as its magic grew ever stronger. Finally, there was just one day left until it was ready. Keridwin had been away, but young Guion had been faithful in his duties and he diligently kept the fire burning at just the right level for the elixir to develop its potency and never once broke his promise that he would not drink any of it, not even a single drop. That evening, as Guion sat by the fire watching the cauldron, Avagdu walked by. He had done nothing of interest or importance all day, as usual, and taunted Guion, questioning why he worked so hard for his mother Guion just ignored him and continued to stir the elixir. Avagdu, wanting to provoke Guion, pushed him as he walked by, causing the long-handled spoon made of walnuts to slip from Guion's hand and fall into the cauldron. Guion quickly grabbed the spoon, but the end was covered in the boiling liquid which scalded his thumb and instinctively Guion put his thumb in his mouth and sucked it to ease the pain. Suddenly, he was filled with a great light that opened up the horizons of his young mind. He felt as though he could see everything that had ever happened or would happen in the world. 
With his newfound vision, Guion also saw Keradwin. She was far away, looking towards the sky as if she were looking straight at him and into his eyes. She was red with anger and rage, calling out that she would kill him for what he had done. As she spoke, the cauldron split in two, spilling the elixir on the ground, which turned into a deadly poison that killed everything it touched. Guion moved away just in time as the poison began to melt the stone beneath his feet. He began to run, not knowing where to go, but Keradwin was in pursuit now, coming for him to kill him. As he ran, Guion wished he could become a hare to outrun Keradwin, and in an instant he transformed into a hare and ran into the light. But Keradwin also had magical powers, and she turned herself into a greyhound, which was faster than the hare. Soon, Grion felt the breath of the greyhound on his neck as it chased him relentlessly. In a split second, Grion changed his direction and headed straight towards the lake. With the hound chasing him, he had no choice but to leap off the edge and into the dark water. As he plunged, he wished he could transform into a large salmon, and with a flash, his wish came true. He swam away at full speed through the murky, reedy water. Keradwin, though, was not giving up, so she also jumped into the lake, and as she did, the greyhound transformed into an otter. Now, salmon are fast, but not as quick as otters. Guion could see the otter's paws flexed to strike as it came closer and closer. Guion knew he needed to escape, and so he made a colossal leap out of the water up into the night sky. In midair, he transformed again, this time into a swift, and he flew away as fast as he could into the darkness. As Guion looked back, he could see Keradwin leaping out of the water, and she transformed into a sparrowhawk right before his eyes. Now, sparrowhawks were even quicker and more agile in the air than swifts. The amber-eyed bird grew ever closer, extending its talons as it swooped towards Guion. But Guion the Swift sharply changed direction in an instant and deftly avoided the hawk's attack. Having gained a few valuable moments, Guion spotted a large barn with its doors open below him and he quickly flew towards it and swooped inside. After looking around, he realised it was a grain store. Thinking fast, Guion transformed himself into a single grain of wheat and dropped into a pile of wheat grain that nearly reached the roof of the barn. Keradwin, who had turned back into herself after being a hawk, walked into the barn and smiled. I have you now, Guion. You won't escape me this time. Right before him, 
Aiguillon watched as Keradwin transformed herself into a large black hen and began to eat the grains of wheat one by one. She ate with such fervour that it seemed like magic. The big black hen just kept on eating the wheat grains without ever growing full. Peck, my peck. The big black hen consumed every piece of grain in the whole barn before turning back into Keratwin. Standing in the middle of the now empty barn with a satisfied smile on her face, Keratwin said, I warned you, Guion. I said I would kill you if you had even a single drop of the elixir and you promised you would not. You did not keep your promise, but I have kept mine. As she walked away, Keradwin felt a strange feeling from deep within her. She immediately put her hands to her tummy and then fell to her knees on the cold barn floor and she looked up and cried, No, no, this cannot be true. But it was so. That tiny grain, called Guion, was not in her belly, but deep within her womb, and she could feel his heart beating. Keradwin knew Guion would continue to grow within her. As the months passed by, her belly grew and grew, and she planned and prepared for the day that Guion would reappear. After nine long months, Keradwin lay on her bed alone and gave birth to a baby boy. As soon as the child was born, just as she had planned, she took her dagger, raised it in her hand above her head and brought it down towards her newborn baby beside her. As she did, she looked into the eyes of a baby and she stopped the dagger from delivering the fatal blow. She paused and raised the dagger again, but she couldn't bring herself to bring it down upon her child. Keratin threw the dagger aside and looked into her beautiful baby son's deep dark eyes and she held him to her breast. She knew then that she could never bring herself to kill him. Instead, she made a new plan. She wrapped her baby up warmly and left him as she went out to gather withies. She brought the withies back to the barn and after feeding her son, she set about making a coracle. For those who may not know, a coracle is a small boat made from a willow frame wrapped with a skin that was light and easy to carry. When she finished, Keradwin tied the baby to her front and put the coracle on her back and walked towards the cold, salty waters of the ocean. The little boat was sent spinning and tossing by the waves and currents as the tide withdrew from the land. Keradrin watched until it disappeared over the horizon, knowing she would never see her son again. For many moons and tides 
the small crippled drifted in the vast ocean with the baby on board well wrapped up so he could never perish or grow older. One day, the tide carried the coracle back to the shore at Conwy. On that same day, a prince named Elfin decided he would go fishing on the coastline near the mouth of the river Conwy. Elfin preferred the simple life of rural folk over being a prince or a king. His father, the king, had given up on him becoming his successor and ruling the lands and said the only way Elfin would ever become a king was if he had a son to continue the royal lineage. That night, Elfin arrived at the shoreline and began to cast his nets across the estuary. Once his nets were cast, he sat down and waited and watched the stars in the dark sky until eventually he fell into a deep sleep. In the morning, Elfin waded into the water to gather his nets. Excitedly, he hauled them towards the shore. But instead of finding his nets full of fish, Elfin found a little coracle covered with limpets and barnacles. As he looked inside, he saw something wrapped up in a bundle lying still and silent on the floor of the coracle. Elfin began to carefully undo the cloth that wrapped the bundle so well. He did not know what was wrapped within the cloth, but there, right before him, he found a baby boy whose face shone with a bright light. Elfin fell back in amazement, and all he could say was, look at that shining brow. Now, for those who do not know, shining brow in the Welsh language is Talisin. Elfin had an idea. He thought, if I take this baby back to the palace, my father will make me the king. Elfin carefully wrapped Talisin back in the cloth so he would not get cold and he returned to the palace as quickly as he could. Once back, the women of the palace looked at the baby boy and immediately fell in love with his beautiful dark eyes and his shining face and asked if they could take care of him. Elfin agreed, but only once he had presented Talisin to his parents. Elfin then went to his father and said, Father, I have done as you asked. I have a son and his name is Talisin. A new prince has come to Conwy. And that is how it came to be that Gwion, reborn through Ceridwyn as Talisin, became not only a prince, but the greatest poet and prophet in all of Wales. And that is a good place to end our story. Except that the local lore of Conwy tells us that Talisin was later known as Merlin. And that is a wonderful story for another time. Thank you for joining us today at The Nature Storyteller. I hope our stories have taken you to a beautiful place, deep 
within your own imagination. And at the same time, I hope you've gained more knowledge about the natural world and wild creatures that share it with us. Storytelling has always been a way for our ancestors to share their understanding, learning, wisdom and knowledge of their world. Through the generations, these stories have entertained, informed and inspired people. And they continue to do so to this very day. Now it's time for me to return to the forest and begin a new adventure that I will share with you on the next Nature Storyteller 